Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to this next episode in the Basketball Connections podcast. Basketball Connections is an international organization that was founded by FIBA expert and NBA scout coach Terry Layton. Basketball Connections is a great way for coaches and players to connect all across the globe, and we're excited about these next episodes to come. Coach Layton has got some great lessons in basketball that will help you improve as a coach, and so I'm going to hand it over to Coach Terry Layton, and we're going to get started. Thanks again for listening. Coach Layton. Well, here we are back in another Basketball Connection podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm a Chuck Arnold from Malaysia right now. He's got uh, got some changes in his life where he's going to be doing some traveling, and I've got a lot of events this summer that I would need some travel. But I thought we'd talk about something that Dick Mata started many years ago, and that's what we call cutthroat basketball. And cutthroat basketball is a way of teaching basketball in four on four with three groups of four and four. You can do it full court, you can half court, but he was one of the first ones. And then all the guys that have come out of the Princeton group have taught that way a lot. And I'm seeing a lot more coaches seeing that four and four is a good way of exaggerating spacing on offense and defense and a lot of things you can teach through it. So I'm going to give you some concepts on four and four. And and, uh, I'm also going to do, I just made a video through Championship Productions that hasn't come out yet on this. But um, I think the first thing with it is that you're going to have three groups of four and four. How would you make those groups up, Chuck? Uh, I really try to mix up the groups as much as possible. So I don't, when we do our cutthroat drills, uh, I don't have all the starters on, in one group and then the bottom of the roster in the last group. Um, I, I try to mix it up so that my, my good guards are always competing against the good guards and the good posts against the good posts. And I think you're on the same. The track that I'm trying to say is you want to mix it up where you might have four little guys versus four big guys. And you don't want to mirror everybody looks the same. So have a one point guard that all look the same, a two or three or four, because that's not what's going to happen in a game. In, in the modern game of basketball, um, it's for me as a coach, it's really important for my my uh, uh, players to be universal. And I guess I get this a lot from three-on-three three is I really stress and, and teach that my bigs need to be able to guard perimeters and my perimeters need to be able to guard bigs. I use a phrase when I do this. Is I don't want you to guard a player that looks like you. Hmm. And what I'm saying is that you're only going to get better if you're a small guy, if you guard big guys, or you're a big guy, guard small guys guard people with different skills, but if you guard guys that are similar to you, it's hard. Now, the second part, the second thing I have, I think I see a lot of high school coaches run this where they're stationary, and they just give the ball to a two-guard front, two wings, and pass the ball around. And what I found over the years, most offenses start with dribble entry to come into your offense on a full-court basis. So, have your guys on the outside dribble into it to initiate offense. So don't just have them standing still because that's not going to happen. The other part is how you teach faking and passing with this. I have what I call open face passing. And what I mean by that, if I cross my foot across my body 
to make a pass, I cannot pass to the inside of the court. So I try to use whatever foot's nearest where I'm passing to step that direction because it allows me to fake, look inside, and penetrate better by open face passing. Uh, the other one internationally, are you seeing in Southeast Asia a lot of one-hand passing? No, it, the the passing here is very, very low level, and um, the, the teaching that they have gotten has been... Uh, uh, the, the very old two-hand chest pass, and I'm a big advocate of, of uh, one-handed passing. As I go to the higher level places from Serbia, Croatia, and Spain, Turkey, Argentina, the two-handed pass is way behind. Yeah. And you need to learn to dribble and pass off the dribble with a one-handed pass. So one way to do this is to go, okay, you got to make all your passes or every other pass with one hand. Or anytime you're dribbling, your passes with one hand. But to encourage the one-handed pass, and I think we as Americans are behind in that too. In a lot of areas, you know, the old rule is pass with two hands. Yeah, I uh, I agree. We've had U.S. coaches come out here and to do camps, and that's the very first thing that they show is the two-handed chest pass. And um, you know, I, I have to explain to them that that's that's not what. That's not what we're teaching anymore because uh, in the modern game of basketball, a two-hand chest pass, you're passing right into the, the de- defensive lane. And so I want to pass around the defense or through the defense. And I use other things like that. You're actually passing to the elbow or the wrist of the player with his target out. And the chest pass tends to lead toward passing to the chest. Right. You don't want anymore. Um Here's another one that actually goes to the offense of this that I think is mistaken teaching. When you're playing the offense, you do not want to teach a bad habit. And a bad habit with this drill is to pass and stand still. But I see a lot of coaches teaching this cutthroat pass and stand still. So what do you want to do? You want to go away from your pass to distort your defense. So anybody away from the ball, away from the direction of the pass, should take two or three steps down, and the guy will come back up on the guards, but that makes it much harder for the defense guarding the ball that was originally guarding the ball to watch what's going on. But you make it too easy on them, but you teach a bad offensive habit if they stand still. And it's also, we're seeing a lot more zones this year in college basketball, and also in the zone offensive set, you never want to pass a standstill. Yeah. You want to distort the defense and go from there with it. Um, players must get into a triple threat position when receiving the ball or their team is rotated out. So you want to teach triple threat and a quick triple threat. I was uh, with uh, a former NBA coach of the San Antonio Spurs this last week, and he talked about that they want to keep the ball 0.5 seconds. So they want to square up, but in 0.5 seconds, it's a pass, dribble, or shot. Yeah. Not make this a slow, rocker, fake type of motion, but be in an attack position as quickly as possible on receiving the ball. And that attack position means I'm looking to the inside to see if there's an opening, to see if there's a man there, I'm ready to penetrate, or I'm going to pass it on with that open step 
open face step. How does that hit you? Well, I, I teach, um, when I do passing, I don't just teach throwing the ball. I, I really emphasize catching the ball too because I think that's very important. And so all of my players now, when they when they catch the ball, um, they should have their hands in in shooting position already to for exactly what you just said is we want to get them to the, the triple threat position as quickly as possible. And so the way that they should receive, be receiving the pass um, should be in the, their hands should be in the shot ready position, um, not in the traditional two hands up diamond reaching out for the ball. This week I happened to see a college game on TV, which had a six, nine New Zealand player that he was in a squat position with his hands ready to get the ball especially coming out of any screen and roll at the top of the key. And he was so good at just catching and shooting because of his preparation. And one of the questions I used to get from guys, how do I shoot the ball quicker? So well, you're prepared before the ball comes there quicker. So if you're prepared by the time it gets there, uh, the bad player will catch the ball standing up, having to go down, having to come back up, or his feet are wrong. So now he takes so much time, the defense can get on him or get in his way of what he's doing. But this kid was one of the best I had. When he was down in a triple threat position without the ball at a 6-9 at a three-point range, and he would just catch and fire. And I believe he was playing on Miami's team. I wasn't familiar with him, but uh, I was really impressed by what he did with that. Mm. I do another thing on this, and this may seem strange to some people, but I'll try to explain it. I have a rebounding rule. My rebounding rule is the man that's back on defense is the highest man on the side of the shot. Now think of that. So if we're in a box formation, if the goal goes from a baseline shot, the guy that's back in defense is the guy high on his side. But the other two guys, high and low, got to get to a rebounding position. And this is foreign to a lot of people the high guy to go rebound. The same way, if the ball comes from the wing player, the wing player, he's the highest guy on the side of the ball, so he's got to be back. He shot it. And the guy in the baseline will rebound, the other two guys on the opposite side rebound. But trying to teach the opposite side guys to rebound. And we've had a changing of the art of rebounding, where we used to teach a lot of screen out, box out. And there are times and there are positions when you need to do that. But so many of your rebounds are coming from longer rebounds and your wing people away from it on the top are the key people. And I think we need to also do this anytime we do what we used to call dummy offense. If we're running our fast break or early offense, then take it to the point of rebound. Don't stop it before that. And one way to do that, if some of you remember what we used to call a rebounding rim, and it's a rim that goes in the basket. Only the size of a ball can fit through the middle rim. So the majority of shots don't do that. So they rebound. So you can practice it with that rim on the basket, and you get rebounding practice too. You can even do the same thing where now I go down the other direction and fast break off that from that, working on the rebound. Uh, are you one of those guys that has a certain number rebound the ball, a number one or number two or... I, uh, what is your rebounding rule? I teach it exactly uh, what you just said, what you just explained. And in the in the five years uh, of being a head coach, 
my school, right? My at Delight International, where my players, my Asian players, are always shorter than the international competition that we play. We have we have rarely ever had a game where we've gotten out rebounded offensively and defensively because we focus on that simple detail of what you just said is if if they're ball side the high guy always gets back on defense and the opposite the opposite uh, guard spot and wing spot or baseline spot always crash the glass and we and I've always and because of our size because we're always short um, we really, really rely on those opposite guys crashing and working and working the guys under the rim instead of trying to get underneath them and box out. Because even if they do box out, the guy's going to jump over top of us and get the ball anyway. So we push them under the rim um, and, and look for those long rebounds. And we I mean, we just won a tournament this last weekend and every team uh, they had at any given time they had three guys on the court taller than us and we out rebound. That's how we won the tournament was is our offensive rebounding capability. Do other coaches notice that that's happening? Um, I don't think so. I, I think um, at the level that we're at here, you know, we have some pretty decent coaches, but they're just not they're not as as committed to understanding the game. As a you know, ba- basketball coaching, the whole reason why I'm here is is this is my life. So my focus is on studying the game, um, and you know, I just I, I still I, I watched a three hour video segment with Bob Huggins um, the other day to to learn a little bit more about defense. So I I, I think there's a big lacking of coaches um, really being students of the game over here, and really being detailed to being students of the game. Right. I had a clinic in Brazil that I really think the translator didn't understand the concept, so we had a hard time translating. He was translating word for word, but got it. Now, you said something about a few minutes ago about screening in. One of the characteristics I found is find the best guys to do something and see what they're doing. So I remember early I would watch Dennis Rodman, and I found out that Dennis Rodman would go away from the rim on the opposite side. And he would either screen in if there are players inside there or screen out if they were a player to the outside. So he was constantly either pushing in or screening out to create more rebounding space. And he'd always have his arms up in the air, either when he did, to quickly attack it. So I think there's something to be said for watching the real good guy of what he does and how can I teach that. And I'm not in the theory that you can't teach some things. I think some people think, oh, they're not smart enough to catch that. No, you just got to be a better teacher. So how am I going to be a teacher that can break that down? Tomorrow morning I'm going to have a breakfast with one of my former players that I was 29 as head college coach, and he was 28 and a half, and had three kids, and he was probably one of the best instincty players that I ever coached in terms of just, and somebody asked Joe, what are you doing? How are you setting that up? Why do this? to make him do this. So that was interesting. Mm. So realizing that it's not just block out and it's blocked in, that that are the same way with tip out, tip in. If I'm a bigger team, I tip the ball, keep it alive on my own basket. If I'm a lower team, I try to get a hand up and tip out to keep it out of those big trees. So you have tip in, tip out, uh, screen in, screen out. Mm. Just terminology to go with it. 
Here's another one. I think too many just cutthroat drill as a two as a box formation. But in your regular games, how many games are you playing with a two guard front? So why not do your cutthroat drill in a one two one formation? Now I have one point guard, two wings, and I could put the one man high post, low post, whatever I want to do with them, short corner, whatever. But that's more the formation I'm going to be playing it at. So why don't I teach that way? Have you tried that before? Yes, uh, yesterday in practice. Uh, that's something that uh, that we, we do a lot of cutthroat. Well, we do cutthroat drills every practice. And uh, uh, we mix up the formations for exactly what you just said is, is a lot of times uh, we, we face such a diverse set of, of coaching playing against our conferences seven different countries each with their different style of playing so we do face a lot of different different fronts and i think the other thing you can run a certain place with four men mm. so uh one of them you know is just borrow the wing and screen on the wing for example that you can run and defend that in that situation um uh there's what they call the spain right now the spain is a high pick for a point guard above the top of the key, and you screen the screener. So now you're going to screen the screener, pop a shooter out, and the postman will roll. So you run that as the basis, so they're learning an offensive set with four guys, and it's easy to put the fifth guy into it. I also do another one I haven't ever seen anybody do, but I just yell, use the word cut, and telling a guy, say a guy passes the ball on that drill, if I say cut, he's got to cut through, and they've got to rotate positions. But I tell him you cut through the corner of the side of the ball, cut through the opposite. But to make it more game-like, and then as they get a little better, you tell them cut every time you pass. Now it makes it more game-like, uh, half-court situation. So I use verbals on that at the same time. You can also add your own plays or run your own plays in a format setting. And uh, some people are confused by that, but every play has a guts to it. And usually you very rarely have a five-man play. The play is a two, three, or four-man play, and the opposite guys are keeping active by spacing, cutting, screening. They're doing something away from the ball. Uh, I'm going to go on just a little bit more today because I had a good talk with a guy this week and talked about communication lines and rules. And I was talking to a young coach in Canada, and he says, I never want my kids, when I do this drill, in matching uniforms, the foreign party. And I said, why? He says, because they got to communicate more if they're not. So I said, I don't care if we have eight different colors going on. But if they don't see that I have four black shirts and four green shirts, then the communication improves. And I thought that was a really good point. He said he also does things like he'll tell the guys, you got to put one hand behind your back and only can play defense with one hand. Or put both hands on your chest and play with one guy. So he, he sets up situations where it forces communication. Instead of keep yelling to him, you got to talk, you got to talk, you got to talk. He said, I force communication. He will also do a three-on-four situation. Where he'll yell for one guy that he's got to go touch a sideline or he's got to touch the top. 
and they're running four and three for a few minutes in this cutthroat defense to make it harder than it is. So it's kind of an, I call underload, overload. You're underloading to overload the defense to make them so they got to really communicate. But you got to figure ways to make them communicate. How do you get your guys to communicate? Similar to what you just said is uh, we do we do some drills that put them in disadvantaged situations. We do something called wall ball, uh, which is four on four transition defense. Or the guy, if we roll the ball to the offense, the guy's got to touch the wall. So it's a three on four until the guy can get back. Um, so we, we do some drills like that. And I, I think that's a really good point that you just made about uh, forcing putting them in situations to force them to communicate because it's just like school. It's just like teaching in school. Kids get numb to hearing your voice. And uh, so if you're saying you got to talk, you got to talk, you got to talk, uh, eventually eventually, that's just going to be a, another one of those routines that mean, that has no me- true real meaning to a, a player. And so you have to actually, just like anything, you got to show them. You got to put them into situations where they have to communicate. I start off sometimes, for example, put two teams in the key, or three teams sometimes, but let's say two teams in the key, and said you have two minutes to move around, your hands got to be in the air, and you got to yell defensive phrases for two minutes. Then at the end of two minutes, I'm going to throw a ball somewhere and yell blue or green, and that team will be in offense, the other team's got to be in defense. And the idea is continue your communication. Now, part of doing that, you've got to create a communicative language. What are we saying for what? What do we mean by face? Which my language means a guy is cutting in front of your face, a face cut. But you've got to make sure the vocabulary. And I learned this by a player that we were running a press. And I kept saying, come on, Jamie, you got to talk. you got to talk. And finally he jumps up and says, coach, what do you want me to say? And I learned a lesson. I was telling him to talk, but I didn't tell him what he was saying or what it meant to anybody else. So I think the language that you create, what you mean by a certain terminology. And as you travel to Michigan and Texas, and we have different names for cherry picking or something, you know, a a different name, a different part of the country. So you got to get in the same language. Yeah. Yeah, that's been difficult for me. <laughs> Everywhere I go, uh, there's a completely different terminology and language for everything. So I, I have to just uh, just kind of observe and, and listen for um, what they're calling the different things because you're absolutely right. It's completely different uh, all over the world. And they got to understand what does that mean? You know, what is that word? What are we saying when that occurs with it? Uh, I, I told you before that in the northern Latin American Colombia, they call a point guard the piloto, the pilot. Man, I like that term. That makes sense to me. He's the pilot. He's driving my plane. Yeah. He's the guy with the But, you know, uh, what, what is your vocabulary defense? What are you saying? What are you meaning by that? Even an example of the word switch that will come up in some of this. Switch, to me, means that we've got to make bodily contact to the two players switching. Hmm. So they've got to be close enough to slap hands. A switch just by switching doesn't do anything. But by that, that's part of what that word means. So you got to find your word. These are good things to think about. Four, four, we'll explore this a little more, go into this a little more. 
we direct them next time there's some videotape on this where they can see some of this in action. Um, I've been building on this the last two or three years as I watch what people are doing. In terms of your leadership, we've talked about some keywords. Have any keywords come to mind this week for you in terms of teaching players to be young men and young women of championship character? Yeah, we, we had a devotion this week and uh, at our tournament. We, we traveled down to Kuala Lumpur for a tournament, and our devotion uh, was about faith. And... Um, and specifically speaking, it was it was not only having faith in God, but it was about having faith in uh, in your teammates and uh, being able to trust that um, that they're going to come through for you no matter what. Yeah, I think same thing. And you know, the faith to jump out on a man that there's a guy behind me going to stop the ball if it gets around me. The faith if I go up and trap leave my man to run and jump or something that somebody else is going to take that same step of faith with me. And playing good defense is five guys having steps of faith at the same time. Mm. And that they're communicating and they're doing it together. Uh, I think the other one is faith in people off the court. That I, I, I have a faith in my coach. I have a faith in my teammates. I have a faith in the captain. I have a faith that involves my relationship with Jesus Christ, I have a faith in my school. There's a lot of examples of faith, but they're basically built on the Christian ethic of faith. And I remember back as a teenager, we had a speaker in our church, and he put the letters up and he wrote, Forsaking all, I take him. F-A-I-T-H. Hmm. And I, I always remember that definition of faith, forsaking all, I take him. And that's always been a key phrase for me because of teaching, learning that as a 13-year-old kid was always a key word, what faith meant to you. Other people use the faith as believing something even though I don't see it. Hmm. Even though I don't see it going on with us. Well, I hope you have a good week of faith this week. You're taking a big action and you'll maybe share with us next time we get on. What's going on in your life this next week or two? And uh, want to encourage anybody to email us or write us at basketballconnection.com or terrybounce uh, at hotmail.com or at chuck at world-hoops.com. If you have any question or any area you want, or you're interested in a three-on-three clinic or camp or anything we can help you with coaching-wise clinics, we're doing these all over the world. We want to make a difference and help you. Definitely. Okay. Have a good day, and we'll have another podcast out in a couple weeks. All right. We'll see you all later.